0: Please be seated. Good morning, I'm Brandon Barrett, lead pastor here at Grace Covenant, and if you're visiting with us this morning, we're glad that you're here. Thanks for being with us. you come this morning towards the end of a series in the book of James, so if you'd like to be turning there, we're going to be in James chapter 4 this morning. If you're using one of our few Bibles, you'll find that on page 1013. As you're turning there, let me ask you a question, though. Um, it's spring. Last, If you were here last Sunday, we, it was summer in, in all its heat and full bloom, but we're back to spring today. So, you know, you plant things in spring, so let me let me ask you this question. If you go out in your yard, you want daffodils in the spring, then you go and you plant daffodils, and then in the spring you get... Yeah, okay, you guys are great. All right, you're rolling. This is a participatory part here. You want tulips in your yard in spring, you go... and. Plant tulips in the spring. You get okay. A little bit harder. You go. You want grass in your yard, and so you go and plant grass in the spring. You get yeah okay. <laughs> the visitors to Williamsburg didn't know how to answer that. The people who live here did. What happens when you plant? I mean, if you go to my yard, you plant grass, and what happens? Well, you get you get weeds, and you plant tulips, and maybe, and you plant daffodils, and possibly, if your yard is like mine, you have. Moles, voles, rabbits, deer, lots of clay in the soil, squirrels, right? You know, we really want this sort of A plus B equals C, right? It ought to be, we ought to live in such a world that I can do what I did this spring, which is go spread grass seed and grass will come up. But you know that doesn't always happen, right? Well, that's what James, believe it or not, is talking about this morning. Let's, uh, let me pray for us and we're going to jump in and see just, just how. Let's pray together. Father, we do come before You this morning, and we come specifically to Your Word where You reveal Yourself to us. So we pray that as we turn to James right now, that You would speak to us by Your Spirit, and that You would reveal Your mind to us, that You would open Yourself to us and us to You. We ask this in the name of Jesus, our Lord. Amen. James chapter 4, verses 13 through 17. So whoever knows the right thing to do and fails to do it, for him it is sin. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of our Lord stands forever. And so to it we turn this morning. Again, if you let me review a little bit, if you you know this, if you've been here with our series in James, uh, about three years ago when we started this, ser- this series, uh, back in James chapter 1, he, he speaks at length, and we spent a few weeks on this, he speaks, speaks at length about our experience going through trials in life, about how difficult those trials can be and the spiritual dangers they present us with, the ways our trials can make us wander from the faith, make us turn our back on God if we don't understand them correctly and process them correctly and step into them in a helpful and healthy way. So he talks a lot about trials. And at that time, I was very conscious of the fact, as, as we had conversations throughout the week, and I can see you while I'm preaching, and I know my own life, that you we start talking about trials, and something about that immediately resonates for most of us, because you don't have to look very far to think about the trials of your life. Now, in particular, for some of us, and for any given congregation or group of people at any given time, some section of people are dealing with very significant trials. I mean, I mean the, the, the ones that really bring you up short, not just the daily ins and outs and hassles of life, but the ones that really grab you by the throat. James talks about that in the beginning of his book, but now as we near, near the end of his book in James chapter 5, where, whereas he was talking about those of us in the middle of caught in trials, he talks about the other end of the spectrum here at the end of the book. He talks about uh, those of us for whom, you know, life just seems to be going pretty well. You know, at least at this particular juncture, you know, known hard times in the past, maybe, but you know, life seems to be working. We're we're doing our thing and cranking through, and and the product just seems to be coming out. Things are going pretty smoothly for us. You know, A plus B sometimes in our life feels like it really does equal C. So he's addressing these folks, and he's and he says there there's a great spiritual danger here as well. Not only when you're going through significant trial and Uh, and struggle, but when things are going well, he said there's also an incredible spiritual danger. So here's what we're going to see this morning as James unfolds it for us. He's going to talk about, in those times, what we believe and what we forget, what we confess, and what we become. Okay, What we believe, what we forget, what we confess, and what we become. First, what we believe. Look with me again in verse 13. Come now you who say today or tomorrow we will go into such and such and a town and spend a year there and trade and make a profit. <clears throat> Elizabeth, my wife, and I were looking at it this week and she said, she read this, she said, this is one of the only times in the Bible I can think of where it basically says blah, 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 blah. You know, <laughs> you know we're going to go for such and such a time. And, you know, James is casting his net wide. He says, you know, this is what it's like when we make plans for ourselves so often. You know, we have got a plan and we're sticking to it. We're going to do the right things, take the right steps, and we're going to get a certain. Uh, we're going to get a certain effect at the end. We're going to get a certain outcome if we walk through the steps carefully and with our eyes on the plan. James says there's an incredible danger in that. He says, "You know, come now, you who say." And when he when he says that, he's talking. Mean, he's talking to all of us, didn't he? I mean, you know what it's like to have our plans and our expectations, and we're doing our thing, looking for the outcome we expect to come. And we're going to see there's nothing wrong exactly with making plans, but there's a way in which we go about it. And James is saying this, this is not just, uh, you know, something that a few people fall into. He says, this is, this is the default mode of the human heart. Okay. This is how we work. Now with a possible exception, sometimes we'll get back to this of those times when you really are in the, the crucible of those trials and significant struggles, but he said, "For most of us, this is—you know—when you wake up in the morning, you you reboot the system. Like this is what comes up on the screen, right? Okay, we've got a plan. Where here's what's happening this morning. Here's what I'm doing this afternoon. Uh, here's what I'm pursuing. Here's where it's going to end up." You know, all, I look over this section in particular, all our, all our empty seats, as our William and Mary students have finished up a semester. Graduation is this morning. Uh, and as folks, especially for our graduating seniors, I mean, you know, here they are at one of those juncture points of the plan. I'm going to go to college. I'm going to go to William and Mary. I'm going to get a degree. And then I'm going to go do this next thing. We have our eyes on what's happening. But James says there is a way in which we go about that. And it's the default way that we look at life, where we essentially believe this, you, you know, We have it all together. And if we come up with the right plan and if we are responsible and take the right steps and make good choices, then we're going to get what we expect at the end of the day. That we are people who really, when it comes down to it, are people who can stand on our own two feet. Uh, this past week, uh, Elizabeth and I went to a, uh, one of the Christian schools here in town hosted a, uh, a conference with a guy named John Roseman, who's a child psychologist, and s- some of y'all were, were probably there as well, and he was talking about parenting, which we're always desperate for any advice we can get on parenting. John Roseman's wise, and you know he's probably, John, he's probably in his, in his late 60s, and he, and he talked a lot about his own parents and that generation that raised him, and he talks about uh, his his mother, and, and when he was a small child, he remembers his mother looking at him and saying, you know, John, my goal for you is that you will be able to stand on your own two feet and as quickly as possible. <clears throat> and, I, and, I, and that's, you know, there's something right about that in parenting. I look at my own small children and think, my desire for you is that you would stand on your own two feet and as quickly as possible. You know, I, I think about one of my children and I'm, I remind myself uh, at least every other day, that, that this child eventually, they're going to be at least of an age to go to college. They're going to leave the house, and, and I'm not going to be bringing them their milk in the middle of the night. Like, they'll figure out a way to do that themselves. They'll stand on their own two feet. There's something right about that. As parents, you want your kids to be able to function as you know full adults. But here's the problem. When we think, able to stand on our own two feet, we so quickly think of that in relation not only to... Uh, to our parents and to the independence that we, that we have, but, but just in an absolute sense. Here I am, an uh, individual, and I can stand on my own two feet. And when it comes down to the details of my life, the nitty-gritty stuff that goes on throughout the week, I'm essentially adequate for my life. I can make my plans and I can do it without any real on-the-ground reference to God. Now that can happen, certainly, may, and maybe you're here and, and, and you don't have any real strong belief in God. You don't know what you think, and you know what it's like to walk through your weeks that way. But you, you may also be one who's convinced there is a God, and you're a Christian, and you're following Jesus, and you find how, if I, as I do, how easy it is to be right in the middle of the same thing in the middle of the week, right? I mean, you know, here we are. with Sunday morning. It's, it's raining. It's gloomy in Williamsburg, and we're here in church, right? I mean, come on. You know, we know God is out there, right? I mean, at least on a Sunday morning, but you don't just like in the middle of the week of to lose sight of the the presence of God in everything that we do. And James is saying, there's no part of our life that we're to see apart from this presence of God that we live in constantly in all our lives, all our plans, all our steps have to come in reference to him. You know, what we believe is that we are people who can really stand on our own two feet. Now that that might happen for a couple different reasons. Maybe it, it you know when you really think about it, and maybe you're upfront about this, or you just suspect it deep in your heart. Maybe you maybe you just think maybe there's there's no real God who's interested in us at all. Of course, I stand on my own two feet. There's nothing else to stand on, or. <laughs> Again, maybe you profess that you do believe, but you find that in practical ways you fall in exactly the same pattern. Maybe it's because at the end of the day you think, you know, I know that I profess that there is a God, but I have a deep suspicion that I'm scared to own up to that maybe He's really not there for me. He's there. Maybe He's not there for me. Maybe I can't trust Him. Okay, James points out what we believe. He goes on, though, to point more specifically to what we forget. Okay, look with me and. Verse 14 and then on in 16, 17, 14, here's where James starts to turn the table. He says, yet you do not know what tomorrow will bring. What is your life? For you are a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. Verse 16, as it is, you boast in your arrogance and all such boasting is evil. He's saying, here's how we can break it down maybe, that we tend to forget two things. One, we tend to forget that we are finite. The other thing we tend to forget is that we are fragile. That we are finite and we're fragile. He looks, look, he says, you know, you don't know, you don't know what tomorrow will bring, you know, much less a year from now. He says, you're, you're finite. You can't read, you can't read the tea leaves. You know, you can't, here you are talking about going and, all these great plans you're going to go to such and such a town you'll be there a year you make a profit you'll come back he says you don't even know what tomorrow's going to bring you don't have the wisdom or the ability to tell the future and when you're saying on those same days you remember that how much is utterly out of your control i mean you know just you live in virginia you get reminded of this fairly often you turn on the news in the morning and read the weather forecast then see how it really plays out over the course of the day and you know we don't really have much of a grasp on the future in any real way at all or, uh, you know, in the details of your life, you don't know what's going to happen tomorrow in your job when you step back into that tomorrow on Monday morning. You don't know what's going to happen in your health. You don't know what's going to happen with your spouse, your children, your own parents. I and mean, again, think about James chapter 1 when he talks about these people in the midst of serious trials. He says part of what happens in trials is it's, it's almost as if they just leap out of nowhere or they're this pit in the middle of the road and it just sucks us in when we're least aware. Like, we don't expect it. Some of you can, are in the middle of trials right now where you can testify to that. Everything was going along just fine until I went to the doctors. Everything was going along just fine until my spouse and I had this conversation. Everything was going along just fine until my child did this. We don't see it coming. Because he says, we are finite people. We don't know what is next for us. But he goes on and says, not only that, he says, we're fragile He says, you know, you don't don't know what's going to happen next. But he also says, you know, what is your life? He says, your life is a vapor. It's a puff of smoke. And what happens? It's there for a moment and the wind comes and blows and it dissipates and it's just gone. How's that for a happy thought this morning? He says, our time is so brief and so fragile. And so he says, when... He says, when you forget this, what happens? He says, you become arrogant. Verse 16 again. As it is, you boast in your arrogance, and all such boasting is evil. We look around and we say, we forget that we're fragile, we forget we're finite. We say, look what I've done, look what I am doing. I'm standing on my own two feet. I'm, again, reminded that fairly often in our house with various children. I won't name any names, but uh, this happened again this week. One of them, they need some help with a craft or something they're making for mommy, so I cut something and we, you know, we, we do this thing and draw. On So then child takes it to mommy. Look what I did. I did this all by myself. I'm like all by myself. Who had the blue stick and the scissors over here a minute ago? You know, but how often do we in the same way, you know, no, no real recognition of the place of God in our life, that we are finite people, that He is the one who enables us, who upholds us, who is there all the time. hes How do you draw your next breath aside from the provision of our God? He says we are finite and fragile people and when we forget this, we become arrogant. Now, everybody knows this, whether you believe in Jesus or not, because you know what it's like when you look at someone else's life and you see their arrogance about their own life and what they're accomplishing and where they've come from. And it's not hard to look at them and say, at least yourself, you know, tomorrow you might just get run over by a bus or you keep talking like that. And tomorrow I might run over you myself. You know, you don't know what you don't know what's coming. You know, you, we, we we tend to see the folly of others' arrogance so quickly. This stuff because we know that other people are fragile, and we know other people are finite. How quickly, though, we tend to forgive it, forget it about ourselves. And James goes on to say, he says this isn't what, that kind of arrogance that grabs hold of us, all of us, so often. He says it's not just foolish. He says it's evil. It's not just foolish, it's not just, a, it's not just a poor lapse in judgment. He says there's, there's a, it, it involves a moral category because it is, a, it is turning away from the God who in fact holds you in His hands. It's trying to live life in such a way that you don't see your own dependence on Him. So he says, you know what we believe, we stand on our own two feet. What we forget, that we're finite, that we're fragile. But he goes on to what we, what we confess or what we are to confess. Look with me in verse 15. He says, instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live and do this or do that. If the Lord wills, we'll do this, do that. Now, if you grew up in the South, which about three of you did. The rest of you all came down from New Jersey. But <laughs> if you grew up in the South and you've known people that, you know, that, that'll talk this way. You know what? We're going to go do this. We're going to go do that. You know, Lord willing. Lord willing, right? I mean, they, they're they're applying at one level, James right here, that phrase, if you ever heard somebody use that, that's, that's what they're at least giving a head nod to. And James says there's something right about that. Now, of course, like anything that we say, I mean, it can easily just become, right, the stamp at the end. You know, I grew up with a religious background. I know at the end of the day when I say something, I'm supposed to say, Lord willing, right, without any real connection to that. But James is saying there is a reality behind those words that we must grasp. That behind all of our plannings, that there is a a God to whom we live in relationship, to whom we answer, and in whose hands we live. The way the Bible says this elsewhere is that God is sovereign. That He is, he is like a king. In fact, He is the great king. And he, he holds everything in His hands. All of us. All of the world, all the universe, in the hands of our sovereign creator. He says, God is the one who is powerful. God is the one who is not finite. Who is not fragile. The sovereignty works out in care for us. And and the let me give you the, the twenty-five cent theological word for this. It's, it's God's providence. Okay? Let, let me read for you what the Westminster Confession says about God's providence. Westminster Confession, one of the uh, very important documents for Presbyterians, and here's, here's what it says in chapter five of the Westminster Confession. God, the great creator of all things does uphold, direct, dispose, and govern all creatures, actions, and things, from the greatest even to the least, by His most wise and holy providence, according to His infallible foreknowledge, the free and immutable counsel of His own will, to the praise of the glory of His wisdom, power, justice, goodness, and mercy. What's it saying? God is the Creator, He is great, and He upholds and oversees and rules all things through His providence, the greatest things that happen in the world and even the very least, right down to the atoms and beyond. He says it all sits in the hands of God. And that is what James is trying to remind us of. He says when you make your plans, if, if the Lord wills, there is always this understanding, whether it comes out in your words or not, But he means for it to be deep down in our bones that all of our steps in life and all of our plans, even our rightful plans, all happen within the context of there's a God who is at work here and who calls the shots. There's a God who upholds me, not me, on my own two strong legs. And the truth is I'm fragile and frail. And I'm dependent on this God to bring his will into being. Now, if you think about it enough, you might realize that maybe that's not actually enough comfort for us. In one sense, it's really not. Because for us to simply say, and as if the Bible only said that God is sovereign, that He's powerful, that He holds all things in His hands, that is just not enough for us. Because we've all seen power misused and abused. We've seen people with far less power than this make life very miserable for very many. But the Bible doesn't stop there. It doesn't tell us that He's only sovereign. It also tells us this incredibly important thing about our God, that He is not only sovereign and powerful, but that He is good. He's good. One of the most precious attributes of God's being and, his, and who He is is His goodness. His goodness. Here's a way uh, uh, one hymn puts it. The, the name of the hymn is called, His Love Can Never Fail. And l- let me read you the first verse and then the refrain. It says, I do not ask to see the way my feet will have to tread, but only that my soul may feed upon the living bread. "'Tis better far that I should walk by faith close to His side.'" And here's the line. "'I may not know the way I go, but, oh, I know my guide. His love can never fail. My soul is satisfied to know that His love can never fail.'" What's, what's the, the hymn writer saying? He's saying, we, we, can't, see that very, we can't see very far down our, the path ahead of us in spite of all our good planning. And he says, well, ultimately, what's our hope? Even though we can't see the path We don't know what's coming. He says, I know the one who is my guide. That as I put my trust in God, as I realize that by faith I'm hand in hand with Jesus, that I can still step forward in the dark. Reminds me, too, of a a line from The Lion, the Witch in the Wardrobe by C.S. Lewis. If you've read that or seen the movie, you know this line. He's in a conversation with uh, Mr. And Mrs. Uh, Lucy, the, the, the youngest child, one of the main characters. Is in this conversation with Mr. And Mrs. Beaver. She's in uh, Narnia, and they're telling her about Aslan, the great lion, who is the king over all Narnia, and who has not been seen in many years, but is coming back. So they're explaining Aslan to her. She, you know, she asks this question. She says, "You know, is he safe?" And they say, "Safe? No, he's not safe, but he is good." But He is good. And that's what the Bible holds up for us time and again, that we have a God who's not only powerful, but He is good. He is well disposed to His people. He's not only powerful, not only has the power to do what is right in the world and in your life, He is well disposed to do what is right and only what is right. Mysterious as that might appear for us in the middle of things. You know, James doesn't let us off the hook in planning. He doesn't say, don't plan, Don't make any plans I mean, you're a, you're a vapor. What, you Do not make any plans? God's in charge. He says, of course you're going to make plans. Of course we step into this life that God leads us into. Of, of course we do that. But he says, as we do that, it is always with this realization and this starting point of, you know, the Lord is the one calling the shots here. I am in His hands. I'm going to try to pray. I'm going to try to step forward responsibly. I'm going to try to put my eyes on the things I think God has for us. And I'm going to move in that direction. But, but my, my life is in His hands. And I have to trust that He is going to bring out what is best, whatever that might be. Okay, that's what we are to confess. Let me just say, let me finish with this. What are we going to become if we become people like this? What are, we going to be, what are we going to become if we're people whose eyes are more and more open, where we can look around and say, you know, my life really is a vapor. I really am fragile. I really am finite. But I have a God who is powerful and who is good. And in Jesus, I have a God who has placed His love on me. If we look around and say, there is a God that I can trust. How do I know that? Because He gave His life for me. If He would do that, if He would come in the flesh pay for my sin on the cross that I might be released from it, what would He not give me? What aspect of my life would He possibly not care about if He gave me that? If He went all the way to the end for me? Can't I trust Him in every little thing leading up to that, big and small? What would we become as we grab hold of that? Well, I think we'd see at least four things. Grabbing hold of this would make us humble. It would make us humble. An attractive humility. You know what it's like to look at the person in their arrogance and to be caught in it ourselves. Look at look at life as I've made it work for me. We would have a humility of look at look at God's goodness. Look at His care for me, even in the good things, even in the accomplishments, to be able to say, you know, this is all just God's goodness poured out. We'd be humble people. He'd make us humble. It would make us humble that it would make us confident. Okay, now maybe that's not what you'd expect on the surface, uh, that it would make us confident. Because here we've said, you know, essentially our life's a vapor. (laughs) It's in the hands of God. But it would make us confident. Because don't you know now that if, if your life is really in God's hands, what can happen to you? What can possibly come into your life that does not behind it have the hand of our good God mysteriously Doing what is ultimately going to be best for us. Now remember, James is talking to people, go back to chapter 1, in very real trials. The very real struggles of life. James knows that life is hard. But at the same time, he says, you can have a confidence. One that actually frees you from your anxiety. To be able to rest in this, that you have a God who is powerful and good. He is doing His will. And He is going to bring it to good conclusion. You know, when we forget this again, then we say that we're, we become arrogant. If you were to, sometime in high school, at the very least, you, you had to read tragedies, right? An English teacher that made you read Julius Caesar or Oedipus Rex. And you know what happens in a tragedy? There's a character, usually one of, of high birth, somebody who's admirable, who has these incredible skills, that, uh, that those skills sort of make a life for himself, and at the same time, those very skills become his undoing. Okay, the literary term is you know, hubris, this pride that develops. So the very thing that raises someone to prominence ultimately brings their downfall, brings disintegration in their life. Julius Caesar, his enormous ability makes him one of the most powerful men in the world and also alienates those who are closest to him and they murder him. Oedipus Rex, he gets this, Oedipus gets this uh, prophecy about what's going to happen in life and he spends his life in light of that trying to make sure that nothing bad happens and in his, his very efforts to do that seal his doom in the end. Because in a tragedy, what happens? This sort of arrogance leads to things falling apart. But here we see a picture of a confidence in God's care for us that puts things back together, that that releases us from the pride that has to hold on to our life that says, I am making myself. We become confident because our God takes care of us. We become honest. become honest. Because if you really think it's true that God is taking care of you and He is watching over every step of the way for you, that He is well disposed to you and powerful, then for the first time you can actually cry out and say, God, why is this happening? I don't understand. Because you're not just crying in the dark, you're crying to the Father who knows. The Father who holds you, even as maybe He doesn't give you all the answers that you want, but the Father who knows. He says, we actually have someone to cry out to now. And it gives us the confidence to cry. And then the last thing, what do we become? It makes us thankful. Because now you realize we have one to whom we owe thanks. Because when you're standing on your own two feet, the only one you have to thank is yourself. If you find yourself in the middle of that, maybe in some small way at least, you feel that ache, though, of the hollowness of that. Because it just doesn't fit. Because it's just not right. Because we are people who have been given, people who receive, and in fact, people who don't stand on our own two feet. As we embrace a God who does hold us, it makes us thankful. Arrogance turning into gratitude. Okay, let me just close with this. I talked about tragedy a minute ago. The way some uh, literary critics define tragedy is tragedy is, a, is it's a story, it's a play that ends in social disintegration. Things fall apart. And uh, the opposite of that is a comedy. And a comedy isn't, isn't necessarily funny. A comedy ends in social reintegration. Things are put back together the way they're supposed to be. James gives us a picture of a life that's run off the rails, headed towards this tragedy of this arrogance of a life lived without God. James steps in and says, Brothers and sisters, don't you know, here's how we live our life. If the Lord wills, we will do this or that. He says brothers and sisters, don't you know that we have a God who holds us, and we have to cast ourselves on Him. James knows that as we embrace that, embrace that God, this tragedy it, it, it's reversed. It becomes it becomes a comedy because suddenly we become a part of a story that is much bigger than ourselves, and it's one that ends ultimately not in disintegration, but in things being put back together again. And it also reminds us and gives us hope because I mean, let's face it, we're in Act Three. We're living in the middle of the play. And at times, the middle of the play looks really dark. But in Jesus, we're reminded this is a comedy, not a tragedy. And it ends not with death, but with resurrection. Let's pray. Father, we pray, even this week, that you would guard not only our lips, but our hearts, as we step into what we do every day making plans, making assumptions about life, taking steps into the future, and how, quick, how quickly we forget that we are utterly dependent on you. Quickly we begin to assume at some level that we are independent beings, and we don't trust you. We forget that we are fragile. We forget that we are finite. Lord, remind us that you are God, not us. That we stand resting in, in your hands, not on our own two feet. We can have great confidence and joy because the weight of the world is not on our shoulders, it is on yours. Because you are sovereign, you oversee all things by your providence, and you're good. And you've given us your love in Jesus. Drive it home for us and to our hearts even this week. And it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.